0: I'm Tanis McDonald. Welcome to Watershed Writers Podcasts. In this episode, we discover community engaged art and hyperlocal literature. Our guests are Fitzsim Arage, Yasmin Namat Allah, and Ashley Hind, who are a few of the many contributors to Textile Magazine. Now, this is more than a magazine, it's an arts collective, a cultural think tank, and a mentorship generator for emerging writers on the margins. Textile nurtures writers in order to publish that hyperlocal literature. Lean in as we explore two questions that form the backbone of the textile community. Which stories are valued the most? And where does power reside? We're glad to have you join us. This podcast series is for readers and for writers for people interested in how writing works and why it's vital to where and how we live. We record in the Grand River Watershed region, the traditional territories of the neutral Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. We feature interviews with local novelists, poets, playwrights and essayists and offer a showcase for a community of nationally known writers as well as writers who are just getting started. You can find more about future podcast episode on our website, watershedriders.ca, on our Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast channels. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. On Watershed Riders, we are sharing our anticipation, excitement, and curiosity. We are listening local, talking global with you, our audience. And on this episode, I talk with some of the people from Textile Magazine a local literary magazine that is deeply committed to community-engaged art. Textile nurtures writers in order to publish hyper-local literature. That is, writing that addresses the ways and means of life in the region. But Textile is more than a magazine. It's an arts collective, a cultural think tank, and a mentorship generator for new and emerging writers on the margins Textile's first issue was launched in 2019, and it boasts a foreword by none other than Kitchener MPP, Laura May Lindo. The editor's note to that first issue asks two questions that form the backbone of the magazine and of my interview with the people from Textile. Which stories are valued the most? Where does power reside? To tackle these two questions, I spoke with three people who worked on the new issue. One of the writers, one of the writing mentors, and one of Textile's co-founders. The writer is Yasmin Nimat Allah, an Egyptian visual artist and writer who studied at the University of Waterloo and now lives in Toronto. She says that her work focuses on how the translation of language experiences and visuals intertwine with care, grief, and community building. Yasmin was paired with Kitchener poet Ashley Hind as her mentor. Ashley is a mixed heritage writer of Anishinaabe and Cherokee descent. And she notes that her writing often grapples with the erasure of her history. Ashley's poetry has been widely published. She won the Pacific Spirit Poetry Prize in 2017, and she was consecutively longlisted for the CBC Poetry Prize in 2018 and 2019. Her debut chapbook, Entropy, is available with Gap Riot Press. We'll hear from Yasmin and Ashley about the mentoring process. And we'll also hear from Fitsum Aragai, who is co-founder with Andy Miles and project director of Textile. Fitzim is the primary person who makes connections between editors, contributors, and community partners at Textile. He has a long history of community work and organization as a facilitator with Bridges for Belonging, a committee member for Youth in Recreation with the KW Community Foundation, for the Contemporary Art Forum for Kitchener and Area, and on the Black Brilliance Advisory Committee for the Waterloo District School Board. Fitzum will talk to us about the origin of Textile Magazine and its continuing work in the region. Textile is about to launch its second issue with the theme of space and spaces. And about space, contributor Zimab Zara says, and I quote, we need space for mourning, justice, activism and solidarity for bolder leadership, accountability, and community. And Jared Kubia notes: we need to feel the space within us and remember who we are. Join me as I talk with Yasmin Namat Allah, Ashley Hind, and Fitzim Aragai from Textile Magazine. Welcome, Fitsum, Ashley, and Yasmin to Watershed Writers. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. I'm excited. Good, good, good. I'm glad. Um, I'm very intrigued to have uh, the three of you here to talk about textile as um, community engaged art and hyperlocal literature. When I read that on your uh, website, I thought I love these phrases. I love how much that gets at uh, the project of textile, but I don't want to explain it too much because I have the three of you here to do exactly that. and. Um, I really want to invite you to start us off by talking about what community engaged art means to you as uh, it was when you first started out on working with this project and as it might have transformed for you. Uh, in the process of working
1: with it so textile uh, it, it started out of um, it came out of a relationship that um, my co founder. Uh, Andy Miles and I had, we grew up together in this town and, you know, Textile's a grassroots group. Uh, we, we pull in a lot of uh, people, really the people that we work with are the people who have relationships in community already or have the, the diversity and the, the multiplicity of identity to connect to the communities that we want to connect with. But also the roles and, and the format of it. I mean, we have mentors, um, we have editors, and we have contributors. And these three roles are, we have tried to articulate a method where those roles allow for fluidity and growth. So mentors can be editors, um, depending on their experience with creative writing, and contributors can grow into textiles, mentors or editors. It's a collaborative dialogical approach, which produces a, a social action, a richer literary tradition. And that's That's the the framework that we're sort of operating from, but also looking to expand.
2: Ashley, Yasmeen, community-engaged art, what do you think? I'm a fine artist, uh, first and foremost. Uh, I was trained at University of Waterloo as a studio practitioner. Um, And a lot of the conversations that I was having when I was in school were so focused on the systems that we live in and these ideas that I couldn't engage with unless we were having conversations about community. Because a lot of the, the root of those conversations um, tended to be very hopeless at the very end, where mm-hmm. it's like, you are working under this system, how do you escape the system? And the answer seemed to always be community. And as an artist, it became this endeavor of, I want to bring community in in a way that allows me to exist under something other than the systems that I exist in right now and therefore a lot of my projects as a fine artist a lot of the poetry I create is really rooted in this idea of how do we come together how do we gather whether it being in place or on zoom or online whatever it means to be to gather how do we come together in a way that makes sense to us and in a way that in case of disaster we can lean on each other and those two things have always meant a lot to me and spoke to each other in ways that connected and now it just feels like when things fall into place that somehow community always the like attracts like you know community always attracts community so i'm working in community and therefore people who are also working in community are suddenly being like we are having the same conversations. And it's, of course we are. We are always talking about how do we love each other more? How do we care about each other more? How do we come together more? It's always really nice to be in spaces like that where it's like the main focus is like, community is something that capitalism and colonialism have taught us not to exist because independence is the best thing that you could be. How do you undo that sort of damage? How do you undo that sort of narrative?
0: That's a, a great question. There's a series of great questions. I love these. this, how do we come together and how do we love each other more? Um, and uh, it always reminds me of, you know, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. And I'm wondering if that's the price of community as well, our, our constant attention to uh, what it takes to create it and maintain it. Totally. Ashley, do you want to jump in?
3: Yeah, well, I feel like Yasmin hit a lot of my um, heart threads on that one that, you know, I mean, I would argue that there's no such thing as uh, art that exists outside of community, but there's art that doesn't engage or be responsible for its community. And I think that's where I'd make the distinction is that community engaged art is art that is aware it has a responsibility to its community and for itself within community. And it carries that responsibility, you know, and and that will, the responsibility will shift depending on the community and the art and, you know, in intersectional communities will have a lot of responsibilities that we are trying to balance in a good way, but at the end of the day, like community gauged art is responsible to its community and responsible for itself and its impacts on its community.
0: Uh, for sure. Thank you. Thank you for that. I love that, that idea of being responsible as well. And I, I'm cast back which uh, what uh, you're all saying cast me back to uh the launch of issue one of textile magazine which i attended very gladly it was october uh 2019 and i was invited and i went and it was so great one of the things that i want to invite you to talk about and i, I think we're going to focus on ashley and Yasmin uh for now because you two are uh, on the show with a very particular relationship between you, that you are um, uh, someone with, uh, Yasmin is someone who has contributed a piece to the magazine, and Ashley uh, is here as uh, Yasmin's mentor, someone who uh, they have worked together um, to work on this particular piece. And uh, I know when I first started talking to Fitzum and Andy about textile, they talked about how, Um, they valued process over product. There is, of course, a product, a magazine, that you can buy, and we'll talk about uh, how to buy that a little later in the show, but putting the magazine together isn't just a a matter of um, finding some pieces and putting them together in a magazine. There's something else going on here, and I want to talk about the process of um, of that mentoring relationship and um, how that fits into community engagement as a space of art making. Well, that's enough out of me for now. I wanna hand it over to you two and you tell me uh, how you worked that mentor relationship. Um, How did you uh, begin working together? Did you know each other before you were put together as mentor and writer? No? No, we
3: did not. So how did you start? You're right, Tannis. Like it's, um, it's not just like putting together a magazine, needing to have a product, filling all the pages. It's, um, the shift is always mentorship. So even there's, um, there's one form stream of mentorship that is intensive. You know, we have people who are paired with us and we meet up over a regular period of time and do mentorship, which is more traditional mentorship that you would think of. Um, but there's another layer of mentorship which is more of like this, I don't even know how to call it, but it's like, you know, when you're editing someone's work where it's like you have you enter into like a, like a micro mentorship where it's like um, the goal is obviously to get a piece to have its, its voice heard the best but like, it's not Oh, so it can fit into the magazine it's how can we best support this writer um, in the timeframe that we have to, to, to bring their voice to the surface. Um, So I would say that that second kind of mentorship is the mentorship that Yasmin and I engaged in. So Yasmin submitted a piece and and it went through the board's reading process and was chosen as one to to work with the writer to bring out and strengthen the poem and the voice and the narrator and have it appear in the magazine. So do you want to add anything to that, Yasmin?
2: So it was uh, the poem at the very beginning, I think, had... Um, I'm a spoken word artist before I am uh, a r- written sort of poet writer, um, and so much of spoken word is, it's almost a completely different experience. Uh, it's like cooking a protein in two different ways almost, and spoken word is my first love, and when I wrote this poem, I perform my poems in my room. And when I perform them correctly in my head, I'm like, this this is the right poem. Um, so it was really it was really wonderful being paired with Ashley because there was this moment of and Ashley is wonderful in the way she approaches um, the writer with so much care, and I think that's really important. I think um, there is this potential of editing to the point that you erase who the person is when you are the editor creating something and making it to your aesthetic, to your taste, to the point that whoever has written the beginning has completely erased any identity and any sort of thing imaging that makes it really, really good and really, really effective. Um, but instead, we, we met up, we had this one uh, sort of moment of, I can't even tell you how long it was, but we had a sit down together and we had this poem and Ashley had already kind of seen the poem and sat with the poem in a way that I really appreciated because one of the the best advice that I ever got in art school was you need to sit with a piece for as long as the person who wrote it or made it. And that's the only time you're gonna really understand the piece so if a painter spent hundred hours on a painting, you're never gonna understand the painting until you spent a hundred hours on the painting. And I love that idea. And I think art should be approached with that idea of slowness and patience and giving it the breadth and space to exist and then to exist with you in the context. Writing poetry is you write something and, and it feels like you're writing it to the void, right? It yes. feels like you're, you're writing it and Someone's gonna read it, and they're gonna be like, "What in the world is this? Talk- is this person <laughs> talking about? What? What could they be talking about? What could they be referring to?" And I'm I'm the kind of writer, and Ashley and I had that conversation when um, when we were talking about the editing process. I'm the kind of writer who is very thought process. Like my writing is a train of thought. It was so nice to just like sit down and tell someone, um, I don't know if. I've never been trained in writing. I've like this is very much something that I do because I I love it so much. So I don't know how not to do it. And what happens when someone sits you down and was like, oh, all of the academic uh, institution- institutionalized ways of approaching something actually don't matter. Let's let's talk about what's happening right here in this poem. What happened in this event that. I I didn't give Ashley any more information about than what she got from the poem, right? And somehow it felt like she knew what happened even though we we never really spoke of any details. And I think that that is where that beauty lies. And I I don't wanna speak to every single editor writer experience but there is something to be said about approaching these relationships with care because they come from such a fragile place in the first place. And when that, Happens, the amount of magic, I think that because it it made me so willing to let things go and not be so attached to line work. And you know, I'm like, oh my god, I spent so long just coming up with that one line. But it it like Ashley, we were talking, and Ashley was like, Here's what I was thinking, and it sounds like this, and this fits here because it it just it rings true so much for the poem itself. I was like yeah, do whatever you want. You sound great. <laughs> do whatever you want, um, which is fun. And I'm really privileged and I'm really lucky to have had this relationship in the first place, but there's something wonderful here, you know?
3: Yeah, and, and I think that's, you've just, you really hit it, you know, that um, like when you have mentorship as the crux of an organization that is creating art, how you approach every angle of creation is different right so like even if you're not in a a reoccurring weekly mentorship relationship just that one-on-one editing of a poem it's like right and um when we're together in meetings and we're talking about the layout or or the right like everything carries mentorship and community and reciprocity and relationship which is a really beautiful way to create art together because it's like we're, we're all growing each other mutually. Like there's no, it's not like there's a knowledge keeper and a learner. It's, it's like mm-hmm. we are coming together with what we both know and don't know and sharing so we all grow. And I think that's really a beautiful thing about how mentorship, I see how I see mentorship functioning in textile.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask you, Ashley, um, was you were in a position where you had to say to Yasmin, all right, let's talk about what's going on in this poem and let's talk about what else you want it to do. Uh, and this is, um, I mean, I, I'm glad you, you know, came up with the, the idea of the knowledge keeper, right? You don't, don't wanna be the knowledge keeper, but you do wanna be the knowledge nudger or the, or the person who provides the care or the nudging to think more about the poem. And how did you, um, yeah, how did you find yourself in that position and what was the hardest thing for you? Um. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question
3: because um, I guess for me, like I, maybe I see my role differently. Like I see it as what I'm here to do is provide the poet with what I see in the poem from my whatever knowledge or, or training I have gathered and my lived experience and check with them if that's what they're wanting. Because if, if I'm seeing something in a poem, chances are someone else is and maybe they don't want that in the poem, maybe they do. And then to calibrate with them okay how do we get more effective if that is what you want being being seen in the poem have you done it effective enough is there anything else in the poem that you don't want there like really you know gently untangle all the yarn so that we can see each string clearly um which maybe that is like what you were saying but i but i feel like that doesn't carry like as much of a weight so i guess for me the hardest part is that like um and again, like, I'm Anishinaabe, I'm deeply relational, like relationships are always the pinpoint of everything that I'm doing. And, and uh, you know, so the first thing I always worry about or stress about is like the relationships. So when I'm editing a poet who I've never met, um, and then we're like, okay, this, this poem seems to be like a sensitive enough story that I like, you know, I don't know that it's responsible to just send an email saying, here's the edits we'd like to make. Can we have a meeting? Now I'm meeting a poet face-to-face for the first time that I don't have a pre-existing relationship with. And I've got to like build that and care for that in one session while talking about their baby. Cause like, you know, it's like, and you're you're right Yasmin, like I spend a lot of time with everyone's poems. Cause to me, I'm like, my poems are my babies. I don't want anyone just dropping them. So I don't wanna just drop someone's poems, right? Um, So I think that was the hardest part was like just getting over that first nervous moment of being like, okay. You have to go from no relationship to build relationship in a short period of time because at the end of the day like mentorship requires trust and when you have months spread out over that mentorship you can slowly build that and get there but when you've got one or two zoom meetings and a deadline a time deadline on a poem it really takes everyone stepping up and getting very vulnerable and authentic with each other to build the relationship
0: you need to care for that that piece and get it where it's going I really like your metaphor of untangling, gently untangling, I think of, um, yeah, untangling threads to make sure that the, you know, the pattern that they're making is, is, is beautiful and apparent to all. Now, speaking of beautiful and apparent to all, um, Yasmin, you said that you would read these poems uh, in your room and in your head, and I'm going to ask you to read it into the microphone, because because I feel like I have everyone else at a disadvantage because I've read the poem and Ashley and Fitsum has read the poem and you of course have read it, but I'd like you um, to read it out loud so we can hear uh, a little bit of um, what came of this mentorship.
2: Sure thing, let's do it. This House. I am leaving this house, moving an hour away, trying to feel like I'm worth a beginning. My mother tells me I am breaking her heart, says that she did not leave everything she knew for me to leave her and I say nothing. I am leaving this house and most days I am drowning in more guilt than these lungs have learned to breathe through. I was never taught to swim, only drown. And I know the women in my family look at their daughters then look at themselves and apologize. Tell us if it weren't for me You could have been beautiful. I am leaving this house that has left me biting my lips until they bleed, until they are dry, until they are permanently bruised from all the biting, swallowing the words that are not allowed in this house. My words are not allowed in this house. Can words that were never said still exist? If I never leave, will I still exist? This house looks at me and tells me I have amounted to nothing. Looks at me and says, we should have never left. You're like this because we left. Maybe if we had stayed, you would have been more than this. This house looks at me lying in bed for days and does not ask questions, just stares and stares and stares. And I wonder sometimes about phantoms, about mirages that force you to sleep in the corner of your bed, that tell you not to get up, not to leave, not to do more, than collapse under these stairs that are breaking Mama's heart. I am leaving this house. Mama, don't you see? This house does not love us. It has not loved us mama come with me
0: beautiful and powerful let's uh, let's talk a little bit about that this is a poem that is in the spaces issue of textile and i'm interested in the space of this poem um there's certainly multiple uh, spaces featured in the poem. So there's the physical space of uh, the house. Um, There's a space in a family that the speaker occupies and that the mother occupies. Um, And also, I think, more um, existential spaces, the space for physical growth, the space to say the difficult thing, Um, and the the space to leave, of course. So rather than me just listing them, do you want to take up one or two of these and say a little bit more about, um, um, yeah, about how it fits, how you see this fitting into the issue and how many of those you wanted to explore in the poem?
2: My first instinct was to make um, the space an actual physical space, because I think physical spaces have souls. And I think the way they come to us and the way they leave us are very important. Um, But the most important space that I really wanted the poem to take up was space for grief. Um, That was first and foremost where the poem was coming from and where the poem was leaving you at. This, This notion of how do you allow yourself to grieve when things are going right, when they have been going wrong? And how do you accept the space for guilt that exists when you are grieving for someone and they are grieving for you, but you have to leave in order to exist in the first place. And I come from a collectivist culture. I come from um, relationship-based cultures. I come from community-based cultures. They're rooted in everything I do. They're rooted in who I am. Downside of that is decisions that are very individual are very hard. Um, They're very seen as selfish almost. And I would even go as far as say that they are. I just don't think that's a necessarily bad thing. Mm -hmm. And I think making space for that, making space for healthy selfishness healthy grieving for that selfishness, healthy guilt, all of these things. I think the poem takes place in a space, but I'm not sure it takes, a, it takes place in that space at all. It almost takes space inside me and now it takes space outside of me. And then it took space in a conversation and then it took space in the absence of one. And I think mapping out how space can and can't exist in the context of grieving and in the context of bitterness and in the context of guilt. Those were, were the places that I was coming from. And they were the places that I wanted to step away from. But you can tell from the poem that it just, it doesn't work that way. You can't, you can't walk away from, from space, space always captures you. Um, and it's one of those things that whatever, no matter what you do and no matter how hard you try, you, you find yourself returning to these spaces, whether you like it or not, and it becomes an obligation and a responsibility, and in some ways, maybe a chance for forgiveness, but I might not have been there yet when I was writing (laughs) that poem. (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, one of the things I really
0: like is uh, the repetition of I am leaving to suggest with that present participle that it's still happening, it's, it's, it's continuing. So while the speaker of the poem may have you know, physically gotten up and left, that the the space of leaving continues in, in one's mind and possibly in one's body as well, That leaving mm-hmm. is never one moment, but dozens,
2: right? And leaving can take years. 100%, right? 100%. Yeah. And it's, I think also one of those things where um, leaving becomes, especially in this poem, the, the line about leaving becomes you tr- the, the speaker trying to convince themselves that this is a final decision. Yeah. That, and, it, and I think it sounds, it's, it's that little moment when you're trying to tell yourself you're going to do something and the only person you're really trying to convince is you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's, it, I, think, <laughs> I think it like sits with that moment a little bit.
0: Yeah, it's uh it's wonderful. I love the the repetition and the personification of the house, and the difference between the look and the stare. Uh, I thought that was uh, that was fascinating and um, a beautiful ending. It was uh, a surprise to me when I when I read it that um, that the speaker requests that the mother come come with her, um, especially since so much uh, emphasis had been put on uh, on the act of uh, the act of leaving, but. Um, Wonderful. Thank you so much for reading it and for sharing it with us. Do you find that working with Yasmin has changed how you think about your process? Definitely. I think that you can't interact with another human being
3: authentically and vulnerably and not shift and grow. And I I feel like if you're really, really, really getting vulnerable, the growth will almost be like so comfortable and slow that you won't see it or so quick that it just feels like it's always been there. Hmm. Yeah, and I definitely have that feeling from this process. Like at the end of the call, I was like, oh yeah, we've been working for months together. I was like, no, we got on this call this like an hour ago. We have not been working for months together but by the end of that call it felt like we had been working together on poetry for months and had the rapport of being able to deep dive like it was a very beautiful experience. I feel so blessed.
0: Ashley we've been talking about your role as a mentor at Textile but of course you're also a poet yourself and I want to give you an opportunity to read uh, one of your poems.
3: Thank you Tens. Um, so I just want to set up something funny about this poem. In terms of hyperlocal art, is it's uh, it's actually written in response to trying to um, avoid this place during Canada Day, and so going to the AGO and thinking somehow foolishly thinking that would be a, a safer space because I'd be away from you know the place that I live during that difficult day, and uh, and I'd be with friends in Toronto. So um, so this poem's about yeah the way avoiding space, but carrying it with you, I guess. The process of growth. They say identity is about who claims you, not just the blood in your veins, but being lost and found is subsequential. If no one knows you are missing, does anyone go look for you? My brother beats drum outside the AGO 150, plus 10,000 to 15,000 truths. Tells me I don't understand If I had seen what he has seen, I'd bring them drugs too. In the dream, I was the cross. Jesus bled upon my forehead. Fox was a mockingbird, screaming nothing, nothing, nothing. In the morning, mold crept between my toes, grew into ivy, wrapped around his feet, whispering, reclaim, reclaim, reclaim. When the clouds came, the sun gave way to his salt and ash sweat. I will smell like this 2,000 years later when Madonna burns me. The words are inside. They just don't like the way my tongue curls colonized. Voice continually pulled back, smoke down when my home smells like safety. Inside the AGO, everyone stops to take photos with Rupole, glances at Marusso, and leaves the room. The roots are tangled in my grandmother's hair and sand dunes skin. They say tobacco likes to grow where tobacco likes to grow, reaching down deep into her silence. In the dream, I am four years old. I am standing in the office with the dead moose mounted on the wall. I look into his beaded black eyes and run away. Back in the forest, fox is standing still as sound. The wind rustles. He tilts his head towards a hole. I know I should follow, but I don't wanna go into that room again. Sometimes I Google dictionaries so the poems can match my dreams. Voice continually lulled back as if now the words think they belong there. The fifth floor said buffalo filled hills with bone. Song and Hank Williams, Thomas promised that from the right angle, history is present. Still on the way downstairs, a white man hogs the inner railing, never letting me pass. I look up Fox Medicine and the Spirit Guide. They are all about shape-shifting, learning to be invisible. Moose is all contradictions feminine energies born with their eyes open. I want to tell him how my blood beats drum, that I think that is why my grandmother left, that we put so many things in our hearts, we forget we still have hands.
0: Ashley Hind and the Process of Growth, that poem was included in Best Canadian Poetry 2020. And if I'm remembering right, it was also long listed for the BC CBC Poetry Prize, right? It was, yes. Excellent. Thank you for reading it for us. And I want to hear a little bit more about that moment when you determined it was going to be like a magazine, like, and why a magazine over the other things that you could have done, like a reading series, like uh, a play. Um, what was it that you said? Yeah, w- there needs to be a hyperlocal literary magazine.
1: Yeah, so um, I'll start by saying, I really wanna redo my answer uh, to your first question. <laughs> um, I'll go ahead and answer this question now and we'll see how I feel about that later. Okay. Um, so the, the decision to produce a publication was, was definitely conflicted. We, we knew how submitting to, to journals can be, uh, like Yasmin said, submitting into a void Um, And it also came out of a very specific relationship that Andy and I had. So Andy, uh, in my opinion, is one of the best writers of of my generation. I think he's that good and he doesn't share enough of his writing and I'm always pushing him to. I I am less of a strong writer, but I've become very good because of Andy's um, support um, and tutelage. And so sharing my writing with Andy was a way for us to deepen our relationship Um, And it also became a very natural next step for this wild idea I had for a community-engaged art project called Textile um, while I was overseas in Korea. Um, Pitched it to him, and then we started working it out. And then the first day back in Waterloo, I was at his kitchen counter, and we were figuring out, okay, how are we going to apply for grants? How are we going to make this happen? But yeah, that it came out of uh, a writing and editing mentorship relationship that we already had. Um, But we also created a framework or a container for multiple paths of of, uh, creative expression, collective creative expression. So we always knew that there might be other ways that people need to tell their stories, especially when you're dealing with equity-seeking, marginalized communities. So that might be through visual art, that may be through performance, uh, you were at the launch, so you saw some of how people, you know, presented their art. We had art on the walls, we had uh, projections, and moving forward, uh, we're, we're keeping that sort of fluidity, uh, because that's really core to how um, we do this. But publications are, are just one mode, and it, it's, it sort of anchors us as, you know, this is something that can be produced but it's built on a process and in fact whatever it gets produced is based on that process.
0: So potentially textile could be uh, something very different from a literary magazine like it is a literary magazine last year and this year and maybe next year but it might be something else in the future?
1: Something that I'm really excited for you to see in issue two is how much visual art is in it. So cool. you'll- we see a lot of special features that, um, uh, that were either uh, workshops that were um, created or collaborations um, with other uh, with other groups. Um, but a public like publications will be a part of textile always, but it doesn't preclude us from exploring other things and mm-hmm. other modes of expression.
0: That's cool. I-, I like it. I like that it's becoming a kind of. Um art collective of, of all kinds as, uh, and I, I am looking forward to that visual art as well. Um, I think uh, that's gonna be a great addition and yeah, more performance, I'd like to see that too, for sure. Um, Fitz, I'd like to invite you to do a little reading yourself. Um, I know that you uh, were involved in doing, a, uh, exploring a kind of psychogeography of Kitchener, which is the place where you grew up right here in Grand River Country. Um, and part of your project was taking photographs of the Schneiders factory as it was taking, uh, as it was being taken down. And um, just so I don't use a, a $10 word and uh, not explain it, uh, when I'm talking about psychogeography, I'm talking about uh, the physical, emotional, and mental experience of being in a very particular uh, place uh, in geography, a very local place. And um, lots of sociologists use that term. And I know cultural studies people and literary people as well. So um, yeah, I want to invite you to read a little bit from, um, from an article that you wrote about that. Sure.
1: Um, yeah, and this piece is very intentional as well because it came before we sort of decided on, the pictures that I took were before I published this. I didn't know that they would be accompanying this piece per se but I took those photos intending to use it for issue two and ended up not. So I'll read this and I'll explain a little bit more why, we, why I decided to go that route. In September, 2018, I watched a demolition crew descend on the old Schneider's meat processing plant down the street from where I lived. Though I had known about the factory for years, this was the first time I saw inside. Crack slaughterhouse tiles and rebar jutted out from crumbling brick walls piles of rubble towering almost three stories high, never static. The construction site in constant movement. As the buildings become mountains and the mountains disappeared, I became frantic wanting to capture this process. I knew I wanted to use a medium format film camera, but I didn't own one. Luckily, I found someone who did, and we met one early morning that fall to document the demolition. At the time, I had no definite plan for the photos, so they sat in a folder on my computer for a year why I struggled to acclimate as a graduate student at the University of Guelph. I stood out among a sea of white faces. I found white supremacist recruitment stickers not far from the Guelph Black Student Association. I was called a goof and a nigger by a stranger while waiting for a bus on campus. I shared my experience of being harassed in a public post online. People were shocked. Guelph has a reputation for being a progressive utopia of environmentally friendly down-to-earth folks who buy local and go to slam poetry events in coffee shops. The University of Guelph as an institution is held in high regard by the larger community, so I imagine it came as a shock when it recently came to light that three founding colleges that formed the university played a significant role in the eugenics movement at the turn of the 1900s. It was in these colleges where destructive ideas that targeted Indigenous, Black, and other racialized populations for segregation in institutions, cultural assimilation and sterilization were pre- perpetuated and taught. Many Guelph students, most of them white, stroll through campus unbothered and unaware of what it is like for Black people to move through a campus steeped in colonial and racial violence. The combination of being involved in racially targeted experiences at Guelph, the surge of other institutional racism in my community, and the stress of graduate school became too much for me. I took an official leave from my program over the summer to reset. Like the precarious structures of the Schneider's factory, I too was broken over time.
0: Great, thank you very much for, for that piece. In the article, you quote um, the great poet, poet and critic Audre Lorde on the mythical norms of Waterloo County. And I I appreciated your unpacking uh, what was um, going on in that kind of uh, liberal utopia of, uh, of Guelph. Uh, but I, I wanted to hear a little bit about um, yeah, how are you? You were using a Lord's idea of the mythical norms of Waterloo County, particularly with what might be a kind of over-romanticization of the local. Um, can you can you reach back into the uh, the article and uh, and bring that out?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, the mythical norms, Lord's use of that term applied to Waterloo Region, um, defines a sort of racial spatial dynamic that uh, makes it very difficult to uh, navigate once you become acutely aware of it. In Waterloo Region, it's, um, you know, German, Mennonites, Christian, white um, people who uh, sort of reflect that that power dynamic. Um, And it was useful to use the Schneider's factory as a site uh, as it was being deconstructed, because you know, when I was a, a, a kid, I grew up with that around here. It's 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 lauded as this um, industrial giant, uh, internationally known, um, and as it was, uh, you know, sort of crumbling uh, the business and then the physical structures, it provided a sort of opportunity to to think about world building, but also world deconstructing. Um, and I really, I really like that. Um, and I live just down the street from it, so, so I'm always watching it. And while I was, uh, while I was, while I was coming down, and while I was being torn uh, apart, I just knew that I needed to to document it. And it's much more of a visual essay. If I if I had had an opportunity, well, I still do, but I would definitely expand on the things that I wrote about to talk more about what in the region. And in fact, this may inform. Uh, the next theme that we'll be looking at, which we can talk about later. Oh, I was going to say, let's talk about it now. What's your, What's the, other, the next theme? Building off of space and even the things that Yasmin have talked about, we want to interrogate or think really deeply about public memory. Mm-hmm. So this idea of um, places and spaces and communities who get enshrined, why do they get enshrined? Who gets to be um, immortalized in Waterloo Region and who gets left out? Um, and so this is something that we're, it came out a little bit in, uh, the pieces that were in issue two. It's definitely been on our minds for a long time. Um, some editors actually, actually it was Shalaka, um, who's our community manager. Uh, you might have a chance to speak to Shalaka. I think you did speak to Shalaka. I did, I did. She was the one who brought up public memory and it definitely hit on this idea and in the piece what I was also wanting to interrogate. Um, is this idea of, of, you know, if you're not part of the um, majority or the people with power, um, how do you rewrite that?
0: I really like this idea of um, public memory as uh, something to build an issue around, or you know, or a whole show around. Um, I think particularly two of the black communities, the black farming communities that were just north of here, uh, around Wallenstein. Um, that, uh, that Black scholars have written about, but I hadn't, you don't, you don't see them. Um, actually sort of that kind of public memory. Yeah, you don't hear about it uh, that often. You have to go looking. You have to go looking very specifically to find such things.
1: In fact, Textile is very much informed by Janice Jolie's uh, play that she did um, in town here um, that was widely um, pan- panned and critically appreciated in, in Toronto less so locally and and I I mean I mean I'll I'll speak truth to power here I mean I I was in conversations with people who did not like it because of how it made them feel and that was hugely formative for me and I've told Janice this many times that um what she did with that um it was it unsettled a lot of things addressed a lot of sort of an open secret of of how things are um and, and then she left <laughs> so and and I, I can understand I mean I don't, I don't want to speak for Janice, but I can understand a lot of why she left it's it's hard to, to do that and then continue to be here um, but I definitely want to to put respect on Janice's name for for you know charting that path uh, of you know sort of brave uh, work brave arts um, radical relationality and and Speaking that truth, it definitely it definitely feeds into what we do.
0: Um, yeah, Janice was uh, our, our our episode number two, and we we spoke uh, we spoke um, extensively about this for sure. So I will just uh, suggest to listeners that if you have an interest in um, in the the kind of uh, radical work that Janice Jolie was doing in her play, "Will You Be My Friend," we've got it happening for you in episode two. I want to bring up something that um, uh, the Black writer, Shaleen Knight, talks about in her book, Dear Current Occupant, which is a a book that was published, I believe, in 2018. And in Dear Current Occupant, one of the things that Knight criticizes is what she calls the diversity hashtag. That is, that it's too easy for uh, marginalized writers and writers of color. To be used by organizations who aren't working towards real change, it's too easy for them to be sort of checked off as a diversity requirement and used as a kind of virtue virtue signaling on social media and other places. I don't know. I wanted I wanted to hear all of you respond to this idea of a uh, uh, of a diversity hashtag, the use and the misuse of of such a thing. Um, and how it ties in to how textile is working differently. We've talked about community engagement and hyperlocal literature, um, but also in, in some ways, uh, it's a way to to push back against a literary and sometimes an artistic community that can seem very homogenous, very privileged, very white, very middle class, and also problematically unconscious of those uh, privileges. So that's a huge question. Um, can, uh, does anyone want to respond to this idea of what textile or, or the experience of working uh, for textile, how it resists something like a... De- diversity hashtag
3: i think one of the key things is that when push comes to shove you know someone's walking the talk when you look at their employees and so a lot of magazines say that they want to open up and they're doing that diversity thing and they want those submissions but they're not when jobs become available they're not hiring hmm. diverse staff and if you look at textile it's pretty much diverse staff i
2: have been you know and i and i'm sure like i don't want to speak for ashley and but like i have been the diversity hire Like I have been the person who was only told like later that I was like the person they needed for the job, not because of the work ethic, not because of the anything other than being a person of color and the only one who applied or the only one who quote unquote had the skills, which is, excuse my French, but you know, just not so great in terms of being, uh, no, it's rooted in racism. There is no, like, we're we're here to name our systems. It's 100% rooted in people wanting the aesthetic of diversity because it's cute and it's cool now, just... radical things don't stay cool for long mm-hmm. and the second protest happens people will any form of protest against ra- against ideas that are seen as radical the second it's st- it starts disrupting your regular day in and day out you will not be okay with it and you will say like to hell with diversity hires
3: yeah I think some things I would like to add to that is um so one of them that I see is that the the accountability level too that I, like I, I firmly believe that love is accountability and that there's an accountability among the staff, right? So there isn't an expectation that all of us are perfect, but there's an accountability if we mess up. Because we, when uh, Fitzum and I had this conversation earlier about how one of the powerful things about oppression is that different oppressions were used to oppress each other. So, which becomes complicated because how do we liberate each other when we also oppress each other? And it hurts to be able to own that. But like when you have an accountable space that is walking the talk and not just about diversity, you'll see those messy conversations. And, and in those spaces that are diversity hiring just for the sake of look or image, you, you won't see accountability. You'll see sidestepping. You'll see double speaking. You'll see like, you'll see all these ways that like, you know, you'll see gaslighting. You'll see all these other ways of handling when something hard comes up.
2: When you were talking um, about accountability, I, a really good cue is, um, do these people assume they will be racist or do they assume that they won't be? because I want people to assume they will be racist because we live in a racist system. There is no way to escape it. I will be racist. Everyone will be racist. We will be sexist. We will be like, Discriminatory in some capacity. Are you entering institutions and conversations believing in the fact that these things will occur, or are you are you entering them with some sort of disillusion, like sort of a mirage thing, and we're like, nope, we are very equitable here. I'm like, don't don't call yourself equitable. Um, that title is given; you can't claim it as your own.
1: The identities that I'm talking to are not just um, black, indigenous, and racialized people, but it's it's also street-involved folks. Uh, it's sex workers, it's displaced peoples. And the most ethical way to connect to these communities is to do it through relationship. And that's, that's always been the, like the, the, the baseline for textile. It's, it's what drives us. It's a collaborative dialogical approach, which produces a, a social action, a richer literary tradition. And that's, that's the, the framework that we're sort of operating from but also looking to expand and transform as we respond to things because the pandemic completely obliterated the way that we did issue one and we had to do it completely different for issue two.
3: Mm. When it's the hashtag diversity, it's the palatable voice. It's the easy voice to hear, you know, or it's, um, you know, like it's look how diverse we are, but we're taking like what everybody will want to read or sometimes it's that, you know, the, that, to- that, um, I'm not such a big fan of this, this phrase, but trauma porn right so it's like there are stories that are want that people are willing to hear in the diverse range and there's a cap where they're like no you can't go past this line and so you can also tell too that like textile is willing to go past that line and we have conversations about that when we're considering what we're publishing and what we're working with
0: our time is growing short and so I want to remind our listeners that if you want to check out textile online and I very much encourage you to do so You can go to TextileKW at CA to see their trailer for issue two and to sample some of the writing from the first issue. And of course, you can order paper copies of each of the issues. Collect them, trade them, as they say. And you can also see uh, some of the view- beautiful visual art that graces uh, the pages. So it only remains for me to uh, thank our three guests, Yasmin Nimadala, Ashley Hind, and Fitzin Aragay. Thank you so much for being here and telling us about Textile Magazine and Hyperlocal Lit Community Engaged Art. Watershed Writers is produced by Francis Roberts Riley with technical production by Brendan Highmore. Our first season is hosted by CKWR 985 in Waterloo Region with support from Region of Waterloo Arts Fund and in partnership with Idea Exchange and the Waterloo Public Library. Our theme music is Water by Alicia Brilla from her album Rooted.
1: What do we connect?